0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. For those whom uh, I have not met, my name is Russell Trude. I'm the director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and it's a great pleasure on behalf of the Institute and the Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art at uh, the Queensland Art Gallery and, of course, GOMA, to welcome you all here uh, this evening. It's a great pleasure, indeed, to see you all uh, present. May I just begin by uh, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting this evening, um, and give respect to, to Elders, past and present, and expend, extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, may I also, to great pleasure, to acknowledge some special people who are here this evening. Uh, of course, our, our guest speaker, uh, David Urban, uh, about whom I will say more uh, in a moment, uh, Professor Ian O'Connor, the Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University and the President of the University, uh, Mr Chris Sainz, of course, the, uh, the Director of the Queensland Art Gallery and Ngoma. great pleasure to see you here again, Chris. Um, Captain Kasper Kuyper, the Honorary Consul and Consul General of the Netherlands. Um, thank you again, I know you're a regular attendee and I'm grateful for your presence. And uh, Mr Brian Jahn, who I think he's here, um, of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Brisbane. Um, Those of you who are regular attendees at Perspectives Asia will know that the the purpose and and point of these uh, lectures is to provide uh, contemporary perspectives on issues which affect Australia's broad relations with Asia. And we draw the line very broadly in relation to politics, strategic issues, culture, economics uh, and the like. Uh, Those of you equally who have been uh, here with us from the beginning we'll know we 're in our now eleventh uh, year of the collaboration between uh, Griffith and the gallery uh, and I think i 'm right in saying Chris that we both sides value the collaboration a great deal it 's certainly true on the on the Griffith side um, and of course this is our i think it 's our our third um, meeting um, for Uh, 2015, and and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that you are going to be busy from here till the end of the year because (laughs) we actually have a a Perspectives Asia uh, meeting scheduled every month until uh, December. So those of you who want your uh, monthly, and I'm sure this is an audience that seeks more than just monthly infusion intellectually, uh, can come along uh, to, uh, to three or four more events uh, before the year ends. And in particular, uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, the next event in September, uh, 2nd of September I think it is, um, is in conjunction with the Griffith Review and the Brisbane Writers' Festival. So we've got a, a couple of several writers who have contributed to a, a new edition of the Griffith Review uh, and they're coming along to speak to us uh, on the 2nd of September. So I hope you'll uh, keep an eye out for that particular um, activity. Um, without further ado, I think I'll proceed to introduce our speaker this evening. Uh, I met David Irvin, um, I'm not sure of the year, David, but it was some time ago. But I remember the occasion, as I, I think I'm right in recollecting, uh, that um, we were in a Senate hearing and I was prosecuting a series of questions. Um, towards you as the Director-General of ASIO. And I thought you were remarkably evasive. <laughs> Courteous, but evasive in your efforts to answer these questions. Uh, and I think I had a conversation with you afterwards and, and you said something to the order of, um, Senator, there are certain things that senators can't know. <laughs> in the national interest. Of course. Uh, and the national interest, ladies and gentlemen, is an important theme here, because the, our speaker this evening is a person who has devoted the whole of his professional life to the conduct of Australia's national interest. Uh, he spent over 30 years as a Foreign Service officer. He spent time in a number of posts around the world, uh, including being the High Commissioner in the Papua New Guinea. Uh, he was also our ambassador in the People's Republic of China amongst any other, uh, amongst many other places. He um, then, some would say, um, his career took um, uh, a curious turn, but in, in the context of, of David's commitment to the national interest, hardly so, because he became the Director-General of ACES and, and then uh, subsequently... The Director General of ASIO, and he retired as the Director General of ASIO uh, last year. Um, I'm sure you had many disappointments during the course of your career, uh, David, as we all have had. Um, but I can't help but wonder whether or not your greatest disappointment uh, on retiring was that you did not you did not deliver ASIO into its new headquarters along <laughs> along the banks of the uh, of Lake Burley Griffin because I know from uh, meeting you in committees this was a passion a commitment you had Uh, it was also a rather fraught exercise in many ways and frustrating Uh, I I think I'm right in saying that uh, you had to leave before that event occurred Um, but it's uh, ladies and gentlemen an extraordinary delight to have David with us uh, this evening Uh, he's a man of extraordinary knowledge about Australia and its interests around the world in fact, but particularly about Asia. So I very much look forward to your remarks, David. And he's made it clear that he's looking forward to a very lively session, ladies and gentlemen, once his remarks have been concluded. Uh, So uh, you'll probably be more successful than I was in Senate committee in asking David questions. (laughs) So please persevere. Uh, But uh, without further ado, uh, can we please welcome David Irvine to the podium.
1: Thank you very much. Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian Ian O'Connor and uh, Chris Staines here of the Gallery of Modern Art, uh, and uh, ladies and gentlemen... Um, Yes, it has been a long career, and I have just left it. I've been officially retired for nine months. Um, And you talked about disappointed to leave before the building was completed. I did actually give my farewell speech in the building amongst the um, still workmen walking in and out and so on. But, um, yeah, that was a disappointment. Uh, you'll recall that before I left ASIO in the last week I had the very sad duty of raising the threat level in relation to terrorism to high. Uh, and it's a very sad thing that I did in fact go out on a high. Um, but tonight I, I thought um, that it would be useful for me, as much as for uh, for other people, to reflect on a career of 45 years in international relations and national security, um, now that I am at last relegated to observing international developments, not from loitering in the corridors of power, but through the television and the newspapers, and increasingly through the vagaries and the exuberances of the internet. I suppose you know it, it's part of a sort of a process of planned obsolescence that the, the human soul must endure and enjoy uh, with the passing of time and the creakiness of the bones. And as I reflect on those years that began in the middle of the Cold War and a bipolar world, and then traversed through what history will come to see, I think, as a sort of the fleeting hubris of unipolarism, I'm I'm struck by three phenomena. The first, interestingly, for me anyway, um, is in fact the progress that the world has made in 80 years in lifting people from poverty and delivering a better quality of life. Now, admittedly, this is terribly patchy and there's still an awful lot of work to be done. But this progress, in my view, is testament to at least the partial success, more than partial success of the international system that was created after World War II. And which much and which owes, I think, much to the role, the power and the will of the United States and to the intellectual and material contribution from the Western liberal democracies, including Australia. We've still got a long way to go, of course, and we'd love our international institutions to be more effective and less bureaucratic, but let's not forget how far we've come. The second um, a thing that strikes me as I look back um, is... is the global impact of technological progress and what that has meant for us. This impact is felt not only in national security and national defence issues, where wars now will be be fought uh, as much in cyberspace as they will on the terrestrial battlefield, but on how technological invention, and most recently the cyber world, has conditioned the way we live our lives. Mostly for the better, but also introducing new vulnerabilities, both at the personal and at the national security levels. We're only just beginning to recognise and learn to manage these new vulnerabilities. The third is the way in which the the verities of the Cold War, when mutually assured destruction was such a simple concept, um, these verities are under renewed challenge from an international cycle of events whose myriad of moving parts are all moving just so much more quickly. Um, We've not only got the internet of things. In world affairs we have the internet of complexity and the internet of rapid change. And increasingly drivers for change are global or transnational movements. We've seen many global movements over history. The spread of Christianity is an obvious example, um, as was the global challenge of communism, which we which we managed to see off, or at least watch it implode on itself. And and global new movements aren't new. But what is new is the modern availability of transport and communications that has brought new transnational issues to our doorsteps far more intensely than ever before. One transnational or global movement forcing national governments to consider um, newly realised threats to mankind is of course the World Environmental Protection Lobby which transcends national boundaries and joins other longer standing uh, world movements such as those supporting global human rights and social justice issues. Another transnational issues of increasing intensity in recent years has been the phenomenon of unregulated cross-border migrations Uh, and not only from poor, unstable and badly governed areas of the world to the more prosperous, stable democracies including Europe, uh, America, Uh, and countries of Southeast Asia, Australia, and so on, but also, this isn't often realised, between third world countries themselves. This movement of people challenges us in ways that were simply not anticipated when the high principles of the International Refugee Convention were drawn up in 1951. And then, of course, most recently, there is the torment of terrorism, It's actually not so much a new phenomenon. Modern terrorism, I suppose, could be said to have started with the Wall Street bombing of uh, of, um, 1920. However, in its current manifestation, um, as an aberrant uh, Islamo-fascist sect, it's not only a threat to the lives and safety of our citizens, but it strikes, and this is where I think its real danger is, It strikes at the heart of all the values of the enlightened and humane world that we've been trying to promote, including community harmony in multicultural Australia. Without that harmony, multiculturalism will fail in Australia, and governments would be derelict in their duty to their citizens if they did not take all necessary steps to protect their people and their freedoms from terrorism. In terms of shifting centres of power in this world of globalisation and rapid change, the one most obviously relevant to Australia is the rise of Asia as the centre of global economic gravity. This is the newest powerhouse of the world economy, not limited to China, but probably impossible without China. For example, on on 2014 figures, the main economies of Northeast Asia, Japan, China, the uh, Republic of Korea, Taiwan and Hong Kong, together with the 10 members of ASEAN, had a combined nominal GP of about 20 trillion, greater than the economies of North America, or the economies of Europe. Now, while we can't take continued economic growth in Asia for granted, on current predictions, East Asian growth rates will continue to outstrip the growth rates of the mature economies of Europe and North America. The Asia-centric nature of global economic weight is likely to increase. And indeed, in the words of a report produced a couple of years ago, within a few years, Asia will not only be the world's largest producer of goods and services, it will also be the world's largest consumer of them. It is already the most populous region in the world. It will also be home to the majority of the world's middle class. Now... As a succession of ministerial pronouncements, white papers and academic studies attest, Australia has long accepted the need to position itself to participate in the economic and political affairs of a region upon which our security and, it would appear, our prosperity depend. Free trade agreements and active participation in regional economic fora are important tools to this end. And the recent, for example, Australia-China free free trade agreement should be seen as a huge achievement for both countries, providing we can get it through. But free trade agreements are not enough in themselves. As people never fail to point out, our challenge, I would say our greatest challenge, is to gear our economy and our society to take advantage of globalisation and especially of the momentous but essentially positive economic changes that are taking place on our doorstep. Australian governments of all persuasions have talked about the need to gear us for this deeper engagement with Asia. Uh, The 2012 Labor government's white paper, Australia in the Asian uh, Century, stressed the need to get our national house in order, advocating reform and investment across Uh, what the paper called the five pillars of productivity, skills and education, innovation, infrastructure, uh, tax reform and regulatory reform. It called for a a national uh, whole of Australia effort um, with businesses, unions, communities and governments being partners in a transformation as profound as any that have defined Australia throughout our history. Now, while that paper obviously conclu- um, uh, inevitably included some politically contentious proposals uh, reflecting the, the, the Labour Party platform of the day, for example, the National Broadcasting Network issues, I've actually found the thrust of that document a very persuasive strategy for where we should be heading as a nation in the 21st century. Whether or not we follow a blueprint produced under a Labour government, economic globalisation is proceeding rapidly with us or without us. We need to implement seriously and systematically the economic and social policy reforms that will equip Australia to participate successfully in a global environment where the economies of Asia look set set to play a major role. And we should do so stripping out political partisanship and overcoming the obstacles of an adversarial political system that smothers the development of national consensus and energy for economic and social reform. Even with globalisation, a key element um, of our national security will depend on developments in our region. And so... um, Asia is not simply of economic importance to us, it has always been of security and strategic importance to us. And it doesn't follow that economic success automatically brings peace and stability to the Asian region. Although I believe the economic success of the region can be attributed in some measure to the umbrella of relative peace and stability that US military power and its system of alliances and partnerships has brought to the region since the Korean War, the Vietnam War notwithstanding. US alliances and security uh, guarantees have helped ensure that Japan, China, even... uh, Sorry, Japan, South Korea and Taiwan have not themselves gone nuclear in the face of a nuclear-armed China. It's a pity in a way that China has not yet been able to deliver a similar outcome in respect of North Korea. A mostly over-the-horizon US military posture has given comfort to the countries of Southeast Asia in their efforts to to develop a unique and reasonably successful form of regional cooperation in ASEAN. The ultimate irony is that China has been able to achieve its economic miracle and rise above the mess of Maoism uh, in part because the United States has been prepared to guarantee relative peace and security in the Asian region. Of course, we have to also acknowledge that the United States economy uh, has also been a beneficiary and not just a, a, a catalyst for Asian economic growth. But a US presence and US security guarantees have not eliminated the region's underlying internal tensions, and what my Chinese friends call the problems left over from history. These still need assiduous management from within the region. Uh, We can list numerous um, elements of that. Islamo-terrorism, with its totalitarian intolerance and barbarity, Remains a serious threat to the internal order and safety in a wide, wide swathe of, of Asian countries. The long standing religious uh, and ethnic animosities of the subcontinent have still to be worked through, even as India gradually asserts its weight within the world economy. In Northeast Asia, we have the very real threat posed to everybody else. Uh, by an unpredictable nuclear-aspiring North Korea. We have Korean and Chinese animosity towards Japan and Japan's seemingly cultural inability to deflect that animosity by studied statements of contrition over events of 50, 60 years ago. We have disputes, most recently of course, over territorial claims in the contested waters of the South and, uh, and East China Seas that have been allowed to flare up in recent times by a more assertive China. And of course, we have the difficult, distrustful, distrustful relationship between the two greatest powers of the Asia-Pacific region, China and the United States. We have an arms build-up and a military modernization in China that Beijing sees as necessary to protect itself from a repeat of the incursions and depredations of the 19th and early 20th centuries, even if that means undermining the stabilising effect of the projection of US power into the region, and in Chinese views, ultimately replacing it with the exclusive projection of power from Beijing. What we all surely wish to avoid in looking at these issues is sleepwalking, to coin a new phrase that's cropped up in modern history, to avoid sleepwalking our way through the contradictions, the rivalries and the animosities of our region towards a calamity of 1914 proportions. So far, happily, we've managed to avoid that calamity. The challenge is to ensure that we continue to do so. Avoidance of calamity arising from overreach by one or other of the players uh, is, however, just one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is actively working together to promote economic and social progress in our region. We in Australia want our region uh, to succeed economically and socially. We want that for Indonesia and for ASEAN. We want it for China and Japan. And Korea and Northeast Asia. We want it for, the, for India and the subcontinent. Now, if we agree that the goal is mutual protection and mutual self-help, then logic is going to suggest that the need for effective mechanisms for cooperative engagement across the region. Australian governments, the Australian governments that I've served, have all actively supported, some would say obsessively supported, the development of regional mechanisms that foster consultation and cooperation to the greater good. Our support for and dialogue with ASEAN, uh, our key role in the establishment of APEC, are two obvious examples. And our Asian uh, uh, region, whether it be, you call it the Indo-Pacific region or the Asia-Pacific region or simply the Asian region, already has a range of regional institutions or uh, consultative mechanisms constituting what Gareth Evans always used to call an architecture uh, for the management of regional uh, economics and politics. Uh, A lot of these institutions were built around the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, which has now been in existence for nearly 50 years which has played a major part in promoting peace and stability uh, in our immediate region. ASEAN in fact uh, aspires to become an economic community uh, by December this year. Uh, It's a great aspiration, they've still probably got a bit bit more work to do. But there are also key ASEAN centred regional institutions that include uh, the ASEAN Plus 3, which is meeting with China, Japan and Korea, the East Asian Summit, in which Australia participates, and so on. And, of course, there is the preponderant Asian waiting in the 21 Pacific Rim countries meeting together to make up APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. And, and, as well, there are ins- regional institutions and architecture for security dialogue, um, both centred on ASEAN, the meeting of the ASEAN defence ministers, which Australia and other countries participate, and the 27-member regional forum. Uh, separately, China, uh, building its own architecture perhaps, um, it participates in the ASEAN-centric part of Southeast Asia, but it is all also seeking uh, to build its own uh, Beijing centric architecture with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, which moves uh, uh, westward. Um, uh, uh, It's one belt, one road policy stretching from East Asia to the Middle East and Europe. Um, And in addition, of course, China uh, has recently uh, initiated the creation of an Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, a move we should welcome. as a a new instrument for regional cooperation. But in all of that, we should, uh, I think, perhaps be a little bit alert to the potential for a sort of a Huntington-style clash of institutions polarised between those that include the United States uh, and its allies and those that don't. But talking about the architecture for conflict resolution within the region leads me anyway to the conclusion that it's clearly incomplete. Yes, it provides um, forums for consultation, but most are non-binding on the participants. They're effectively only when the participants want them to be. For example, it would be logical, given the various overlapping claims in the South China Sea, for the ASEAN countries and China to discuss a path towards resolution of these competing claims, or failing that, make arrangements for joint exploitation and joint management of the areas in dispute. But China has effectively vetoed that approach, uh, arguing for more for, I suspect, for a divide-and-conquer approach through purely bilateral discussions which have not yet eventuated. As a result, the Philippines has been forced to take the dispute outside the region to the United Nations. And there seems, frankly, to be no great appetite for more formal cooperative security mechanisms. The fate of Prime Minister Rudd's 2008 proposal for an Asia Pacific community, I think, is instructive. Rudd advocated a comprehensive community of the Asia Pacific to promote economic, political, and security cooperation. And his proposal went nowhere. Most countries of the region were not persuaded that they were ready for such a grand institution, with many, particularly within ASEAN, wary of how much the proposal might advantage Chinese interests over their own interests, whether it might actually dilute US engagement in the region or weaken the central role that ASEAN has sees itself as playing in regional architecture. Now. While Australia should continue to encourage uh, the the development of a more effective economic and security architecture for the region, I think progress for the time being is going to be very slow, particularly in the security area. There is a guardedness about um, architecture that might turn out to be dominated by China, particularly in its current phase of nationalistic assertiveness. Just as China is guarded about institutions it sees as dominated by the United States and its Western allies. In the absence of a more comprehensive architecture, many countries of the region, I think, will quietly uh, welcome a continuing commitment of the United States to the region, uh, to peace and prosperity in the region and its willingness to project force to give comfort to those who have been significantly unsettled by recent developments, including North Korea's nuclear ambitions and its erratic behaviour, and um, including China's more assertive stance of recent times. In this sense, President Obama's 2012 rebalancing or pivot uh, towards the Asia-Pacific has been reassuring for many countries within the region, Although, frankly, it's been somewhat patchy in its follow-through, given continuing US uh, preoccupations in the Middle East. Similarly, if the US can find the will to push through a new Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I stress must be based on equitable and mutually beneficial steps back from protectionism, and to promote an even closer economic relations and tariff cuts between the 12 Pacific Rim countries, which are responsible for 40% of world trade, then if they can show that will, it will certainly enhance US engagement in the Asia-Pacific region. I believe, however, that such a partnership, uh, were it to emerge, should include other Asian countries, including China, South Korea, and the remaining countries of ASEAN not already involved. Apprehension about China remains in the minds of policymakers throughout Asia. These concerns are understandable. Indeed, even Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, acknowledged in a speech uh, to the Australian Parliament just last year uh, that, that, that he acknowledged that people were concerned about China as what he called the big guy in the crowd. In a decade when Chinese interests might be better served by policies that build trust in China in the region, many Chinese policies have actually had the opposite effect. The blunt assertion of Chinese might is right at the 2010 ASEAN summit is one example. Successful Chinese attempts in 2012 to prevent the emergence of an agreed ASEAN position on the South China Sea at the ASEAN Regional Forum. There's another. The unilateral declaration in 2013 of an air defence declaration zone covering islands in dispute with Japan in the East China Sea is a third. And the latest construction of um, um, synthetic islands in the disputed areas and uh, reefs and atolls of the South China Sea are certainly hardly conducive to confidence and trust in China on the part of its neighbours, certainly its close neighbours. Now, over time, it is possible that a more robust and effective consultative security architecture for the peaceful resolution of disputes may emerge, and we should certainly keep working to that end. But I don't think I'm holding my breath, at least for the moment. Um, Indeed, I think instead uh, the region is going to have to continue to rely on good old balance of power principles uh, and careful management of bilateral relations, including Australia's bilateral relations with the region. It may be less desirable approach than uh, a grand security architecture, but for the time being it looks to me to be more workable. And it means, of course, that the interplay between the two great powers of the region, working with other major powers such as Japan, South Korea, the ASEAN countries and Australia, will be as crucial as ever to regional security and therefore to Australia's security. Uh, in all of that, we all, I think, wish that the China and the United States could move from a position of Current wary com, um, competitiveness to one of general cooperation. But I accept too that that's probably going to take time and great effort. Here again actually we might turn to the work done by former Prime Minister Rudd in mapping out ways in which these two great powers might develop a greater strategic trust uh, through c- constructive en- engagement. He put out a paper uh, this earlier this year arguing for ch- a change in their traditional mindsets, uh, a change in the mindsets of the two most powerful countries in the world today, who now share, as he put it, unique responsibilities on behalf of us all. He advocated that Chinese and us Americans should work together to defend and strengthen an order against those forces, political, uh, climat- climatological, uh, and biological, that would destroy us altogether. Now this case is Case's typical, well-argued uh, um, idealism on the part of our former Prime Minister, uh, but our region, our, our security and our prosperity would in fact benefit from Beijing and Washington at least giving it a go. In the meantime, what does all this mean in my mind for Australia and where we are moving from here? I think it gives us four mutually supporting challenges uh, in our policies, not just to the region, um, uh, but, but in view of globalisation even more widely. In my view, it behoves Australia, firstly, to speed up the progress and the process of economic and social reform within Australia, not just for our engagement with Asia, but for our engagement with the whole world. We should continue... To be committed to and to pull our weight in meeting our Alliance commitments. We should participate constructively and creatively in strengthening the effectiveness of existing regional consultative mechanisms and, if necessary, promote the development of newer, stronger ones. We should cultivate and deepen our bilateral partnerships not just with our major economic partners in China, Japan, and Korea, but with Indonesia, with India, and other members of ASEAN. So I think that we do have continuing challenges ahead of us. We've come a very long way in the 45 years that I've been watching uh, the development of foreign policy from the inside. Now I'm going to watch from the outside, from the sidelines, with increasing interest... Uh, the unfolding of the so-called Asian century for as long as I'm able, notwithstanding what I mentioned earlier, the increasing creakiness of old bones. Thank you very much.
0: so much for such a tour de force, um, broad, uh, richly textured and reflecting uh, so many years of experience in dealing with the region and globally. So it's opened up a a very wide range of possibilities, ladies and gentlemen, for a discussion, comment, question. Um, Perhaps I might just begin because I have one interest in Mm. particular. Um, You mentioned, um, I think you called it cyber vulnerabilities. And I wonder whether or not you might just reflect uh, briefly on how much vulnerability there is as a consequence of the technology of, of cyber
1: warfare. Thank you. Yes, um, I, I, I actually spent a lot of time in a- 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 Asia looking at this issue from a national security point of view. Um, it's really very interesting. 200 years ago, uh, the United States declared two domains of warfare uh, land. And sea. 100 years ago, they added air. Um, 50, 60 years ago, they added space. And three years ago, they added cyberspace. The move of um, uh, uh, technology has meant that, for example, uh, the warfare of the 21st century will be conduct- conducted in cyberspace using cyber means to weaken your opponents. Uh, um, before um, a kinetic uh, shot is fired, I think. Um, and uh, uh, you can be assured that uh, the major countries of the world are putting a huge amount of uh, investment and effort into how they can control that, cyber, that domain of warfare, cyberspace. Uh, and, and, and what does it mean? Um, in terms of national security in Asia, I was dealing with two uh, particular uh, elements of it. One was sabotage, one was espionage. In terms of espionage, the, the use of cyber means to learn the secrets of your opponent um, has become uh, a key element in a nation's security policies, believe me. And in the case of some countries, it's also been a key element in the development of their commercial and economic projections out into the world. Uh, the ability to learn your commercial opponents' uh, negotiating secrets, tactics, price for this or that effort, and so on, um, uh, can be obtained, uh, 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 that can be obtained by cyber means uh, has grown enormously. Uh, and that is one issue. The second issue is that um, uh, because we have become so dependent on the internet, for every element of our lives, pretty much, we have created a huge vulnerability that only now, in the last couple of years, we've begun to realise we're going to have to do something about it. And so from a national security point of view, the ability to weaken your enemy by cyber means, by attacking, for example, his ability to uh, uh, maintain uh, uh, effective defence, or indeed, by attacking the infrastructure of a community, um, is 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 going to be the new method of warfare? Uh, absolutely, I, I got I got pilloried for this by saying saying something similar um, um, a few months ago. But um, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm engaged in at the moment is. Um, uh, cybersecurity research and one of the things at the University of Edith Cowan University in Western Australia that we're doing is we're demonstrating how just how easy it is to take out um, a water supply plant or an electricity facility or whatever. Um, the, the, the trick of course uh, to, to be able to uh, destroy your enemy's command and control system uh, and the things that support the essential national warfighting effort um, Uh, is now very vulnerable by cyber means. And you say, oh, well, it wouldn't really happen, would it? Uh, Well, let me remind you that um, Russia turned off Estonia for about four days, five or six years ago. I had some spat or other, and it used cyber attack to essentially bring the Estonian uh, economic activity to a halt. Only did it for four days, so nobody worried too much about it, I suppose. Uh, But it also, um, when when, uh, Russia went into... um, Ossetia and the Georgian dispute four or five years ago, it uh, used cyber means to completely uh, neutralise, emasculate, um, or render totally ineffective uh, the Georgian government's military command and control system. So, you know, we're not talking silliness here. Uh, And um, the one hope that you have is that uh, uh, nation-states... Uh, acting responsibly in the international arena are not going to use such weapons lightly because they invite all sorts of retaliation, not necessarily mutually assured destruction yet, but uh, retaliation, Uh, and and so uh, we sort of hope that it won't happen but we should be prepared to build up the resilience of our national infrastructure from a cyber point of view, and I mean our financial systems, our telecommunication systems, our water, our electricity, um, uh, even, even our meteorological systems, because airplanes depend on those to fly. Um, the other problem that I think we all should be aware of when we talk about cyber threats is The cyber weapons, either for espionage or for sabotage, that are available to nation-states are increasingly available to non-state actors. And you've all now read enough in the newspapers, particularly over the last few years, to see the way in which our cyber vulnerabilities, our internet vulnerabilities, have opened us up to um, a serious attack from um, (laughs) organised crime. Um, uh, financial frauds are occurring in this way Um, pensioners money being taken it's it's quite horrific uh, what is going on Um, at the same time um, uh, cyber attack has become a method of um, you know, when I was at university, the best we could do protesting was chuck a few flower bombs at the police or chain ourselves to the university gates. Uh, whereas today, you know, all it takes is some little fellow with, with, with sandals and tattoos and, and, and hair all over his head to sit at his computer and chuck a spanner in someone's works. So this is the, uh, this is the world that we are actually having to adjust to, not only in the cyber context, on a national scale, but also increasingly on an individual enterprise and personal scale.
0: I'd like to call on Chris Saines, the Director of the gallery, to offer a vote of thanks.
2: Russell, thank you very much indeed, and David, thank you on behalf of all of us. I've been asked to offer a short vote of thanks on behalf of Griffith University, the Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art, to David for what I think everyone would agree was a very forceful and compelling address. There was as much depth as there was breadth to that talk and the 45 years of experience that you've brought to bear from your career and very distinguished career in foreign relations and in the uh, intelligence community, I think have percolated up into a great deal of wisdom accrued over a great deal of experience. Um, When you made mention at one point, thinking back to uh, those events that led up to the Second World War, the fact that many nations, perhaps our own among them, slept walked our way almost through and past the rivalries and calumnies of the then contemporary world before events ultimately overwhelmed them. And I think you've given us a wake-up call tonight. There are so many complex intersecting interests, both economic, social, um, and also I thought the answers to some of the questions that were given and they weren't... Uh, I don't think Russell was correcting you for falseness. I think he was acknowledging the fact that you were um, almost stringent in the way that you responded um, to the various questions that came in from the floor. I felt particularly around your response to questions around terrorism. It's very much the case um, that there are many new foreign policy uh, theologies around. I didn't feel that we were hearing from a theologian or a theoretician but someone who had practical wisdom in the way that they'd reflected on and dealt with events in the world through the course of their career and for that we're greatly in your debt and I want to thank you very warmly on behalf of everyone here for that thank you. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts